We return to our text in Galatians, reading now from Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through the end of the chapter, verse 21. Hear now the word of the Lord. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Our gracious Father in heaven, we come before you thankful for your word, for your divine superintendence of every word, for the holy men you called and equipped with your Holy Spirit to record and preserve your word, and for the abundance and availability of your word we enjoy today. As we come now to the preaching of your word, we ask that the Spirit might empower and root deeply into our souls the truth of your word, equipping us as Christians to know better our relationship to Christ, the ground of our justification, and that we might know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his, the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, for we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. We'll just be exceptional in every way today. <laughs> well, we continue our series now through Galatians this morning, picking up where we left off last time. If you recall, Paul is recounting for the churches in Galatia the time when he had to confront Peter in Antioch. The point of confrontation came when Paul became aware that Peter had broken table fellowship with the Gentile believers when certain Jewish men from James arrived on the scene. And Peter did this, we are told, in fear, taking with him this, in this act of hypocrisy Paul's ministry companion, Barnabas. Now Paul's confrontation of Peter, this loving rebuke as we called it last time, is quite remarkable to consider. Here we have two of the most prominent figures in the church coming together at a point of disagreement, and it is Paul, the one who is younger, who is newer to the faith, that is rebuking Peter. And as we come to the text under consideration today, we do so perhaps not quite sure if Paul is continuing the quote of the content of his confrontation with Peter, or if that quote actually ended with verse 14. 
as we don't have the benefit of quotation marks in the Greek, you will find some translations attempt to aid our English reading of the text by closing the quote at verse 14, as in the ESV, while others carry the quote to the end of verse 21, as in the NASB, or, or others avoid altogether the quotes, like we find in the KJV. Regardless, I do think we can see a shift in form from more of a narrative form found in verse 14 to more of a didactic form beginning with verse 15. And it is here that Paul begins the first great exposition of what we refer to as the doctrine of justification. Justification is probably a term you are thoroughly familiar with, even in its theological sense we have before us here. But it is also always a good time, good thing to rehearse these things and to make sure that our definitions line up with one another. And by doing this, we can sometimes avoid pointless and frustrating argumentation. And so, looking to the shorter catechism, question 33, which asks, what is justification? The answer is given as, justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Justification is therefore a legal term that refers to a person standing before the bar of God's justice. In order to be declared right with God, I must be righteous. But I am not righteous. I am a sinner. How then can I justify myself before God? How can I stand before the judge of all creation and know the release, the rest, and the peace for my soul and know that he has finally and definitively declared me not guilty? This is the question. This is the question that was at the heart of the Reformation leading Martin Luther to proclaim if the doctrine of justification is lost, the whole of Christian doctrine is lost. The doctrine of justification concerns God's gracious verdict, His gracious judicial verdict in advance of the day of judgment, pronouncing guilty sinners who turn in self-despairing trust to Jesus Christ, declares them forgiven, acquitted of all charges, and declared just and righteous in his sight. J.I. Packer wrote in his introductory essay to James Buchanan's work, The Doctrine of Justification, he writes these words, The doctrine of justification by faith is like Atlas. Now, I'm not sure where you all stand on Greek mythology. Do you remember Atlas? He is one of, according to Greek mythology, he is one of the titans that holds up the world on his shoulders. You need to know that so this makes sense. The doctrine of justification by faith is like Atlas. It bears the world. It bears a world on its shoulders. The entire evangelical knowledge of saving grace the doctrines of election, of effectual calling, regeneration, and repentance, of adoption, of prayer, of the church, the ministry, and the sacraments have all to be interpreted and understood 
in the light of the justification by faith. When justification falls, all true knowledge of the grace of God in human life falls with it. End quote. We can clearly see that a biblical understanding of justification is hugely important. And as we work our way through the text this morning, I hope at least that much is evident. But I really want to focus not so much on an exposition of the doctrine of justification in this message, but rather to see and understand more clearly the why and the how and the where that are connected to this doctrine. And we will do that by turning our attention to three prepositions in verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. These three small little prepositions, with, in, and for, are so profoundly important to our understanding of the Christian life that I have chosen to refer to them as our threefold relationship to Christ. But before we get there, let's turn our attention back to the text beginning at verse 15 and 16. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, and that phrase itself is perhaps a little confusing, we might say, even we who have been born and bred in the Jewish religion and not among the impure Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So what is Paul doing here? Is he actually saying that those who are Jews by nature know that they are not justified by the works of the law? I believe he is. Paul here is drawing from Psalm 143, where David records his prayer. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. In thy faithfulness answer me, and in thy righteousness. And enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. This is not new news, this justification by faith alone. Psalm 43 is a psalm for the justified sinner, for an unrighteous man saved by the gift of God's righteousness. By quoting from this psalm, Paul showed that God's ultimate answer to David's prayer came through Jesus Christ. David knew that there was no way for him to be found righteous in the sight of God except by looking to God to provide that righteousness which was needed. The righteousness needed has to come from outside him, outside ourselves, and it has to come from a perfect source since only perfect righteousness is sufficient and it has to be freely given to us because we are utterly incapable of earning or meriting this gift. Our only hope is for God 
to give to us, to lay to our account, as it were, His own righteousness, which He has done in Christ. And this is referred to as imputed righteousness. And this imputed righteousness is apprehended, is taken hold of, and received by faith alone. And this is good news. And guess what? The good news gets even better. Even the faith that we exercise to take hold of Christ's righteousness is itself a free gift from God. Thus God accepts us as righteous based solely on account of Christ in whom we have believed. And we see how true and apt and succinct the answer given in the shorter catechism is now. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. But if justification is all the free gift of God, doesn't this lead to presumption and license? Why then should we bother to become a better Christian? What incentive do we have to live for God? Doesn't this understanding of justification sound like we have somehow won the spiritual lottery? Paul anticipates this objection in verse 17. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. Note the language used here. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners. Sinners here echoes back to verse 15. It describes the understanding and attitude of the Jew toward the Gentiles. Gentiles were sinners not so much because they were immoral, but because they lived outside the boundaries of of the law. This is how the Jews from James were viewing Peter and Paul. They had become outlaws. They were eating unholy food with uncircumcised Gentiles. Hence the accusation that they were making Jesus a servant of sin, almost as if he were doing the promotional work for the devil. So how do you answer this line of thinking and argumentation? Martin Luther said, A Christian is not someone who has no sin, nor feels no sin. He is someone to whom, because of his faith in Christ, God does not impute his sin. This is crucial to understand. But note, it does not mean that Christ is the minister of sin. God forbid. Certainly not. When God justifies sinners by faith, He is not aiding and abetting their sin. This very suggestion is blasphemous. God cannot sin. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth He any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. It is we who are responsible for our sin. And Paul then turns the accusation around in verse 18. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, 
I make myself a transgressor. Paul is in effect saying, if I rebuild the law which I destroyed by the preaching of the gospel, I make myself a law breaker. Or as F.F. Bruce put it, anyone who, having received justification through faith in Christ, thereafter reinstates the law in place of Christ, makes himself a sinner all over again. In Christ, the law has been destroyed that we might have a way to be right with God. And now that it has been destroyed, it has to stay destroyed. For I, through the law, am dead to the law that I might live unto God, Paul writes in verse 19. But what does it mean for Paul to be dead to the law? This is a remarkable thing coming from a Pharisee. When Paul was a Pharisee, he lived for the law. But now that he is a Christian, he is dead to it. That is to say, he is no longer under its power. Calvin put it this way, to die to the law is to renounce it and to be freed from its dominion so that we have no confidence in it and it does not hold us captive under the yoke of slavery. But the question then remains, how does Paul die through the law? As Paul considered the law, he studied it, and he tried to keep it. He realized that the law cannot promise life, it can only threaten death. Thus, it is through the law that one dies to the law, not as far as, now, as far as the Christian is concerned, the penalty of the law has already been carried out. The law's demand of death was satisfied in the death of Christ. It was the law that put Christ to death on the cross. Paul's argument then is that when Christ died, he, Paul, also died, at least as far as the law was concerned. He died to the law in the death of his substitute, and he can now triumphantly declare that in dying to the law, he can now live unto God these are hard things, and I think Paul's language is sometimes difficult, but Scripture tells that, us that as well, does it not? And that now brings us up through this very fast survey of the doctrine of justification to verse 20. And at verse 20, Sinclair Ferguson has called verse 20 the Christian life in a single verse. And he opens his exposition of this verse with a helpful question, which is, what is your relationship today to the Lord Jesus Christ? What is your relationship today to the Lord Jesus Christ? Some of us may be inclined to answer that question somewhere along the lines of, well, I'm really growing in my relationship to Jesus. Others may answer the question more like, now that you mention it, you've hit upon a rather sore point in my life because my relationship to Jesus isn't what it once was or it isn't where I would like for it to be. But answers like that, answers that we might give in an informal conversation really do miss the point of the actual question. The question wasn't, what is, your status of your, what is the status of your relationship with Jesus? 
or how are you doing in your relationship with Jesus? But the question was, what is your relationship to Jesus? If I asked Marion, what is your relationship to Chesley? I doubt he would say, we're, we're, we're getting along splendidly, though no doubt they are. He would probably respond with, she is my wife, or I am married to her. And this is an important, un, important to understand that we grasp this concept. When we speak about our relationship to Christ, we tend to refer to the ebb and flow of our spiritual walk. We speak of the peaks and valleys, or maybe we use distance terminology such as near and far. But when the New Testament describes our relationship to Christ, it does so in an absolute and unchangeable term. And so when we are walking through those valleys or not sensing the closeness of Christ that we desire, we need to know that we have a relationship that is as fixed and unchangeable, and it is like being married. It is beyond like being married. It is permanent. It is an objective fact, and it is not subject to our emotional ups and downs. And this fixed relationship is so beautiful and so wonderful in its construction that Paul in this single verse, has to expound upon it in several dimensions. This is the threefold relationship revealed in three dimensions that I referred to earlier. And I will address these not in the order revealed in the sentence, but rather I will address them what I am referring to as gospel order. And that order is, one, Christ gave himself for me. And two, I have been crucified with Christ. And the third way, the third dimension is Christ lives in me. And so let's take a look at dimension number one, Christ for us. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A profound statement indeed. I think we can appreciate the depth and profundity of this statement if we break it down further and consider it in three parts. First, the Son of God who loved me. Note who it is that Paul is referring to as the lover. Who it is that Paul no doubt was eager to preach and teach and rejoice about day in and day out because of his love. It is the Son of God. The very Son of God. Brothers and sisters, do not let the frequency and familiarity of an expression dull the cutting edge of this truth. Let it sink in. Give yourself over to it with abandon. Who is the object of our faith, of our adoration, who is it that created the whole world? Who is it that died for you and for Paul? It is Christ, the Son of God. It is divine majesty. It is the King of kings that Paul says loved him. This is not some bit of heady knowledge to be pondered and 
merely to be considered as a matter of great doctrinal import. It is earth-shattering, profound truth to be embraced and declared to all who would hear. It is a precious treasure to be cherished with our whole being in holy love and appreciation. The Son of God loved me. And did you know that this is the only place in the whole of the New Testament where an individual says, Jesus loved me? Yeah, I'll just wait a moment while all you Bible people say, wait a minute, I think I got some exceptions. So you may be thinking of some other places, perhaps the rich young ruler. But there we read, Jesus beholding him loved him. The rich young ruler may have walked away and considered that Jesus loved him, and he may have said, Jesus loved me. But we don't have it that way in Scripture. Or perhaps John could have said, Jesus loved me. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. We know Jesus loved John, but it's not recorded that way in the Word. But Paul said it. Paul wrote it down. It was Paul who once persecuted the followers of Jesus who is now declaring that it is the Son of God who loved him. And for many of us, this is one of our earliest childhood memories of a biblical truth that we were taught in the words of a simple little hymn. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. Do we teach our children that little hymn? If you're under the age of 10 and you know, Jesus loves me, this I know, raise your hand. You're, okay, thank, thank you, Steve. You're under 10. I'm, <laughs> I'm learning some things today I did not know. Wow, okay. So that didn't resonate with the little ones, but with you older folks, I know it must have. Okay, so secondly, as we consider Christ died for us, note the activity and the action of the lover in, and the nature of that action. He gave himself. Love is made manifest by the actions of the lover. A love that never finds expression in action or activity is sterile, impotent, non-love. It is something other than love. It is merely a thought or a whim. The simple fact that I must is that I must tell my wife that I love her and live and act in accordance with that love. I need to embrace her and protect her and provide for her and give action to my love for her in innumerable ways. Otherwise, it's a fair question to ask if I even love her. The measure of someone's love is related not only to their identity, but also to the activity they engage in, the way in which they express themselves. And what does Paul tell us here? The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And this is an action that goes way beyond general self-giving of going about and doing good. It is referring to the ultimate gift of his life for our lives, of his suffering and death upon the cross and of taking upon himself the penalty due our sins, paying our sin debt in full and giving back to us his righteousness. Such an amazing love. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? 
The hymn lyrics seem to keep coming when we ponder this profound truth. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And thirdly, we need to note the object of the lover's love and activity. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. This is one of the most astounding statements in all of Scripture, that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Ponder that for a moment. Don't rush through it in your mind like it's just another familiar text. It is a text to visit and meditate upon time and time again. I am reminded of the time when a gentleman, some of you know, was offered his first dram of a fine scotch. I suppose that his only exposure to whiskey was in Western movies where the cowboy takes a shot and tosses it back because that's what he did with this scotch. There would have been so much more to learn and to know of the scotch if he had slowed down and lingered over the nose and sipped slowly, thinking about all that was in there and the complexities and the nuances. Such is the case with this text. Feel the weight of what the Holy Spirit is revealing when he says, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Son of God for us. For us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he that, who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the first dimension of our relationship to Christ. Christ for us. In dimension number two, crucified with Christ. Our second prepositional dimension considers Paul's statements, I have been crucified with Christ. And in order to extract from this short statement the beauty and importance being revealed, we will need to do some homework. We need to dig out our grammar books and parse the verb here translated, I have been crucified, and consider the tense, the mood, and the voice but before I go any further, I need to look at Mary Susan. Look her in the eye there 
and ask her to take a deep breath. I know that grammar is not my strong suit, but it'll be okay. I've got notes. For those of you more familiar with parsing verbs, you will remember that verbs have tenses. Past, present, future, and many other subtle tenses. Verbs have voices, either active or passive. Verbs also have moods, indicative, telling us the state of things, or imperative, giving to us a command. And verbs also have a person, first, second, third, and a number, singular or plural. And believe it or not, a solid understanding of the parsing of this verb is profoundly important to the life of a Christian. So let's get started. First of all, note the tense. It is in the perfect tense. It is something that has happened. I have been crucified. It is not something that is happening, not I am being crucified. It is not something that will take place in the future. I will be crucified. It is something that is already true right now. I have been crucified. Next, notice the voice. It is in the passive voice. The active voice would be, I am crucifying or I crucify. It is not something that I am doing. It is in the passive voice. It is therefore something that has been done to me. I have been crucified with Christ. We need to understand that this is completely different from what Paul later refers to in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, where he writes, And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. There we find the errorist tense and the active voice. There he is referring to something punctiliar and coincident with our salvation, where we decisively take the passions and desires of the flesh and nail them to the cross. No, Paul is here saying that I have been crucified with Christ. It is not something that I have done, but rather something that has been done to me. And next, notice the mood. I'm a professional in the things of mood, some of you know, working on it. I have been crucified with Christ. It is in the indicative mood. It is... It is not a gospel command that I am to heed. I am not being told to crucify. Rather, it is a gospel statement that is true of me. It's a bit like, don't stretch this too far, but it's a bit like when Paul describes his identity as a Jew. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day. This is something that is true of him as a Jew and certainly not something he did himself. So then as we put it all together, when Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ, he is telling us that there is, there is something that has already happened and something that has been done to us and it is something that is intrinsically true of us as Christians. It is not something subject to change or something that we have done or something that we must do. No, when Christ loved us and gave himself for us, when we are given new life and take hold by faith of his righteousness, then it is true that we have been crucified with Christ. This is the second dimension of our relationship to Christ. We have been crucified with Christ. <clears throat> Which brings us to the third dimension. 
Christ in us. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Here in this third dimension, we encounter what perhaps is the most pervasive and yet least understood truths in the Christian life, the indwelling of Christ. Christ lives in us. This is a foundational truth that Christ himself taught us. You will remember in John chapters 14 and 15, Jesus teaching the disciples of this truth. He is pouring into the disciples all that they will need to face the coming persecution and rejection. They are afraid and he is comforting them. They are uncertain and he is reassuring them. He knows the spiritual danger that they are in and he says in chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. And in chapter 14, a little while longer, and the world shall see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And Jesus continues a little bit later, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Not only is this foundational, not only is this a foundational truth, it's also a spiritual truth in our Christian lives. And by that, we need to be thinking holy spiritual truth. And we need to ask the question, how is it that Christ lives in us? Returning to John 14, we read, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Did you catch that? Did you catch that? How did the disciples know the Holy Spirit? Because he was dwelling with them. And Jesus says the Holy Spirit will be in them. And Jesus continues, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Jesus is revealing to the disciples that when the Helper who is the Holy Spirit, comes to dwell in them, it is in every respect like Jesus coming to live in them. This is mysterious and beyond our comprehension, and this is what we are called to believe and trust without confusing the persons of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Christ dwells in us by the Holy Spirit Later in John 16, Jesus says, It is to your advantage that I go away. 
For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. What a difficult thing this must have been for the disciples to hear and believe. What a difficult thing for us to understand and trust. But perhaps we can test our understanding with a simple question. Here's the question. Would you rather be there in the upper room with Jesus, hearing His voice, seeing His face, grasping what you could of His teaching, or would you rather have the Holy Spirit? You had better rather have the Holy Spirit. This is the mystery and the hard truth that Jesus is teaching his disciples. And this is the third dimension of our relationship to Christ that Paul is teaching the Galatians and teaching us. Christ lives in us by his Holy Spirit, and it is to our advantage. And it is far better than even sharing table fellowship with Jesus. And finally... Christ living in us is not only a foundational truth and a spiritual truth, but it is also a very practical truth of the Christian life. Let's briefly consider a few points of this practical truth. First, Jesus says it is the Christian who dwells in him and who indwells in who he indwells that bears much fruit. Jesus says that it is the Christian who dwells in him and who he indwells that bears much fruit. What a practical truth. Through this, we come to understand the negative implications as well. When we quench the Spirit, we strangle the life-giving, fruit-producing sap and power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. When pride throttles our praise... When our Christian fruit becomes anemic, we therefore need to feast upon Christ and His Word and make the home of His indwelling Spirit a healthy, vibrant place so that we bear much fruit. And secondly, this is a practical truth because the knowledge of the reality of the indwelling Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest incentive we have to live holy lives. We are who we are in private, and there is no secret sin. Since Christ lives in me, he knows all that I think and do. Recall from 1 Corinthians where Paul writes, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does outside, he does outside the body, but he who commits sexual immoralities sin against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And thirdly, the indwelling of Christ in the believer's life is the key to true Christian fellowship. A practical truth. In Colossians 3, we read that we have... Put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, or free. 
slave nor free, for Christ is all and in all. This ought to inform the way I see my sister and speak to my brother. If we would but grasp this gospel truth, we would do much more to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the body of Christ. Knowing that the Lord of glory has been pleased to indwell my brother or sister, who am I to take offense with his quirks or her weaknesses? Shame on me if I turn up my nose to someone in whom Christ is pleased to dwell. And the fourth point, the indwelling of Christ in the life of the believer is a foretaste of glory. In Colossians 1, we read that Paul has been charged in his ministry to deliver the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. As Christ indwells his people, we taste and see that he is good. And because He has chosen to dwell in us by His Spirit, we have every reason to hope for that future glory when we will see Him face to face in unveiled splendor. And so now Paul concludes in verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. It was J. Gresham Machen who identified this verse as the key verse of the epistle to the Galatians. It expresses the central thought of the epistle. The Judaizers attempted to supplement the saving work of Christ by the merit of their own obedience to the law. That, says Paul, is impossible. Christ will do everything or nothing. Earn your salvation if your obedience to the law is perfect or else trust wholly to Christ's completed work. You cannot do both. You cannot combine merit and grace. If justification, even in the slightest measure, is through human merit, then Christ died in vain, End quote. The notion that Christ died for nothing is scandalous. Luther considered it an intolerable and horrible blasphemy to think up some work by which you presume to placate God when you see that he cannot be placated except by this immense, infinite price, the death and the blood of the Son of God, one drop of which is more precious than all creation. But we know that Christ did die for something, or better yet, for someone, namely for you and for me. Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Christ loved you and gave himself for you. How intimate, how personal. Christ's passionate affection expressed through sacrificial action. Christ, the very Son of God, loved us and gave himself for us. We have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. Three little prepositions and three profound gospel truths that reveal 
our threefold relationship to Christ our Lord and our Savior. To Christ alone be all the glory. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father in heaven, we are so very thankful that Christ is not far from us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, and indeed it is Christ who lives in us. Help us now by Your Spirit to apply these truths to our lives and bear fruit for the sake of Your kingdom to the glory of Christ. For we pray in His name. Amen.